This summer, we have been looking at the seven letters, the seven messages, Jesus' seven messages to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And we've been basically looking at what does it mean to be a Christian, a faithful, what, what kind of disciple do we need to be if we're going to be a faithful and effective witness in but not of the world? So in other words, as Jesus has his church in the world to witness to the truth, what is required of us in the way of virtues, in the way of traits, in the way of characteristics? And here in this last message, the message of the, to the church at Laodicea, the message is basically don't be a Christless church. So before we dive into the text, let's pray, ask the Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds. Father, we do ask and trust You will give us your spirit this morning to lead us into all truth, to bring us to Jesus, to make Jesus great in our lives, to give us, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you, if you are able, to stand as we look at this morning, this final letter, which is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me at my, on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is probably the most famous and, dare I say, the most misunderstood of all the texts, of all the messages, the letters of Jesus to the churches here in Asia Minor, it is without a doubt the hardest hitting of Jesus's prophetic oracles to the church. Almost everyone has heard of these famous words of verse 21, or excuse me, of verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This verse has almost universally been applied or typically been applied mainly in evangelistic settings, whether it's crusades or revivals. I can remember over 30 years ago, this was a major verse when I went through EE evangelism explosion. Only one issue. Look at what the text says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea. In other words... This is written to a church. Now, yes, individuals make up the church, but this is a message to the church. 
I'll give you another area that I think it's misunderstood. I think it's misunderstood in the sense that I think it can be applied, and this would be misapplied if you would, that somehow we all have the power to simply open the door. It's all, after all, on the inside, right? Jesus stands outside. He's knocking. Hi, would you let me in? I would like to have tea and crumpets with you. Please let me in. And we have the power to kind of get up and somehow of our own. Are you catching the sarcasm with this, by the way? Just, just checking. And have to say this since we record sermons now. Uh, do we have the moral goodness, the ability? See, I love how Jack Miller, and this is again going back to my early days of being discipled. Jack Miller would always stand up and he would explain the reality behind this verse. He would sit there and say, yeah, here's how we picture it. Jesus is standing outside, knocking on the door of our heart. He wants to come in, have lunch with us, so he's politely knocking on the door. All we have to do is get up, open the door, and let him in, and we'll feast with Jesus. We hold all the power. It's all up to us, right? Jesus is standing and knocking, and just let him in. Jack Miller used to say, here's more like it. Here's closer to picturing the reality. He says, yes, Jesus is knocking on the door, and yes, we get up, and we put the lock on the door, and we fasten the deadbolt, and we lock the chain, and then we grab the sofa and put it up against the door, and grab the recliner and put it up against the door, and then the refrigerator from the kitchen, and Jesus is knocking on the door while we are basically keeping him out. And he would say, so what does Jesus do? Jesus begins to send a little fire up from the basement. Some smoke, some fire. And we go, oh, it's getting warm in here. Do you smell smoke? Anybody smell smoke? And we go, fire, fire. And move the refrigerator, move the chair, move the sofa, take off the chain, take off the deadbolt, open. Come in, Jesus, save me. Is that the picture? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What do you think? Jesus is here speaking to a church, and what does he do? He sends fire in the basement. Spruce Creek Church, campus outreach friends, do you smell the smoke? How are we to understand this letter? There was a British preacher back in the 19th century, his name was G. Campbell Morgan, and he once gave a sermon on this text, and he titled it, The Church with Christ on the Outside. May I say that might be the biggest tragedy in all the world? A church with Christ on the outside. This letter is written to a church and thus applied to us as a church and applied to us as Christians saying, don't be a church with Christ on the outside. We are to feast with Christ. How do we feast with Christ as Christians and as a church? Three things are necessary. To feast with Christ, you must know who Jesus is. You must know yourself, know who you are, And know what he gives. Real simple. Know who Jesus is. Know who we are in our nature. Okay, that's the fire in the basement that Jesus will send because he loves us. And then know what he gives. Okay? Know who Jesus is. Have you noticed as we've been studying these messages, each one ends this way. Each one ends, he who has an ear to hear which means if you really can hear and apply the word of God, if your heart has been opened to be able, if you have an ear to hear, to truly understand and take it in, let him hear what the Spirit 
says to the churches. Now, what is the Spirit saying to the churches? It's real simple. The Spirit always says, look at Jesus. Jesus put it this way in John's Gospel. He says, the Spirit will glorify me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. The Spirit's job description is a very simple one. Shine the floodlight on Jesus to say to the Christian and say to the church, look at Jesus, isn't he amazing? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he majestic? Isn't he holy? Look at Jesus. The Spirit's job is to display and showcase the glory and beauty of Jesus. And so the Spirit says, church at Laodicea, do you see how glorious Jesus is? Verse 14, he says, the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, isn't it interesting, in every one of the letters so far, Jesus always begins the letter revealing something about himself, and in the previous six, he's always been revealing something about what he does. Holds the seven stars, flames of fire, speaking the word of God. Here, he's telling them who he is, and he's three things. He's the Amen, He's the faithful and true witness, and he's the beginning of God's creation. See, the Holy Spirit is saying to the church, isn't Jesus magnificent? Isn't he glorious? He's the amen. Now, what does he mean by that? He means he's the God of truth. In Hebrew thought, this would signify something valid and binding, utterly trustworthy, something upon which a foundation can be built. According to one commentator, Jesus is the one in whom perfect conformity to reality is exemplified. In other words, by being the Amen, he is reality. It is in him that we see the real thing. He is life as life was intended to be. In other words, if you want to flourish as a human being, look at Jesus. Jesus is all about human flourishing, but he's the way, the truth, and the life. There is no human flourishing apart from Jesus. Second, he's called the faithful and true witness. Now, what does a witness do? A witness speaks about, reveals, tells the truth about something else. So what does Jesus, the faithful and true witness, do? In a word, the Father. He is the true revelation of the Father. So remember back in John chapter 4, the place in John's gospel where Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And I have an opinion. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. We call Thomas doubting Thomas. I think we need to affirm Thomas a little bit. You want to know who Thomas is? Thomas is radically honest, Thomas. And Jesus loves Thomas. Because Thomas is, kind of like, Thomas is kind of like the guy in the back of the classroom. Okay, I don't know if any of you were that guy or that girl sitting in the classroom and the professor would be saying something. This is the way I, I think this is why I drove Tim Keller and others nuts. Because I'd be the guy in the back of the, um, excuse me, I don't get what you're saying. This isn't computing. They'd bring something, hello, nope, still not, I'm not as smart as the rest of these guys. Still don't get, okay, this is Thomas. Thomas is speaking up, and Jesus loves it. Thomas is going, Jesus, you're talking about leaving us, going to the Father, going to another place. If I go away, I have a place, mansions, all that. Time out, Jesus. Not computing. You're breaking some 
categories for me. You're breaking some paradigms. I don't know how to think about this. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answers them. Doesn't reprove them. Doesn't condemn them. Doesn't say, oh, how can you ask such a stupid question? Doesn't do any of that. What he does is he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But then, and we need to, we quote verse 6 all the time, and rightly so, but we stop short. We need to include verse 7 in that, where Jesus says, Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, if you want to know what God is like, you want to know what my Father is like, you want to know who God is, what is he like? Is he just a a hard God, a tyrant, or is he just a tender, benevolent grandfather-like? What kind of God... Jesus is saying, look at me, I am the faithful and true witness to the glory, the beauty, the personality, the reality of the Father. Look at Jesus and see the true God. See, I'm afraid, and Clay was right, we talked about evangelism in Sunday school, and we've talked a lot about sharing. See, I think if you were to go on your campuses or go in the world, seven billion people in the world, you'd get seven billion answers to the question, who is God? And I'm afraid if you ask that question even to the church, you might get a ton of different answers to the question, who is God? Jesus is the answer to who is God. Because Jesus is saying, if you look at me, you see the Father. The Greek word that is used there for faithful and true witness is the Greek word alathinos, which means genuine as opposed to illusory or counterfeit. So as one writer put it, he is the real and genuine article. What he says about God is exactly true because he exactly represents God. You want to know God? Jesus is the revelation of God, the faithful and true witness. And lastly, he says he's the beginning of God's creation. And the Greek word there is the word arche. And by that, it doesn't mean simply beginning like in a sense of sequence or chronology like one, two, three, or four. Arche is more like beginning as source, archetype, first principle. So again, as one commentator put it, Jesus is the source, the archetype of the first creation and the new creation. Jesus' resurrection is the new beginning of creation. This is a major truth conveyed in one of the Apostle Paul's letters, the letter to the church at Colossae. And the church at Colossae had a very close fellowship, very tight-knit with the church at Laodicea. In fact, read the letter to the Colossians, and you read things like Paul saying, for I want you to know, Colossians, how great a struggle I'm agonizing I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And then towards the end of his letter, chapter 4, he says, church at Colossae, I want you to give greetings from me. Say hello to me, to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And also, when this letter, the scriptural, biblical, canonical letter I'm writing to you has been read among you, guess what? I also want it read in the church at Laodicea. And see that you also read the letter, so read here the letter from Laodicea. Apparently there's some non-canonical church out there, but their two churches had enough close fellowship, close relationship, that Paul is saying... Colossians, I want you to read the letter that I wrote to them as well. And historians tell us 
that Laodicea was one of the three sister cities, as they were called, situated in the rich valley nurtured by the Lycus River. Laodicea, Heropolis, which was six miles across the river, and Colossae, ten miles up the river. And as to the church at Colossae, whose letter Paul wants the church at Laodicea to read, that he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, he's not saying Jesus was born in the sense of how he always was, second person of the Trinity, self. But with his resurrection, he launched a new creation. And now, Jesus is writing this message to the church at Laodicea, and he's saying, do you know who Jesus is? He's reality, the amen. He's in whom reality is exemplified. He's the faithful and true witness. Know him and you know the Father. And he's also the beginning of God's creation. The new world has been launched in his resurrection. The end of history has been thrust forward into the middle of history. This is who Jesus is. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you know who he is? But he says, time out. Something's getting in your way. Do you know who you are? See, look with me at verse 15. And this is, this is where he's hard-hitting. In verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. I could take either one. Cold or hot are both fine conditions. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, you defend yourself, and you respond, whoa, wait a second, I'm rich. Life's gone great for me. I've prospered. I don't need anything. I'm self-sufficient. Not realizing. The hardest thing about being lukewarm is you don't even know you're lukewarm. Not realizing, being self-deceived, being deluded, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now talk about hard-hitting. I knew your works. You're neither cold nor hard. Now, now, if we're going to understand lukewarmness and properly understand these words, we need to understand a bit about the city of Laodicea. And so, as one writer puts it, he says, throughout our journey in Jesus' messages to the seven churches, we've come to expect that facts about life in the cities will illuminate Jesus' words and images. And, of course, such will still be the case here in Laodicea. So this is a little lengthy, but we've got to learn a little bit about what Laodicea was like, a little bit about its history and kind of some of the facts about the cities. So according to one scholar, Jesus' words may have been suggested by the fact that Laodicea lacked a natural local water source. Water had to be brought in from miles away through an aqueduct system of stone pipes, and by the time the water got to the city, it had lost its freshness. It would oftentimes be tasteless. Jesus' words here may refer to another fact of life in Laodicea. Six miles away, as I mentioned earlier, you had the city of Heropolis. Heropolis was famous for its hot springs. The water from Heropolis would flow across the Lycus Valley, spilling over a broad cliff directly across Laodicea. The cliff was 300 feet high and a mile wide. It was covered with a white incrustation of calcium carbonate. It formed a spectacular natural phenomenon. But as the hot mineral water from the hot springs in Heropolis travel across the valley, spill over the cliff into Laodicea, 
it would gradually, over the course of that travel, become lukewarm, become putrid. It became not only tasteless, but positively distasteful, nauseating. Unsuspecting tourists might drink it only to spit it out of its mouth, vomit it out, because the lukewarm water induced vomiting. So when Jesus speaks the words, hot or cold, they were most likely suggested by the fact that everyone in Laodicea knew about the hot medicinal healing water of Heropolis and the cold refreshing spring water of Colossae. The water of Laodicea was neither. Neither hot and healing and soothing, nor cold and life-giving and refreshing. So when Jesus says hot or cold, he's saying both of those conditions are good. Being healing and medicinal or being life-giving and vibrant. The only thing unacceptable is putrid and lukewarm. And when Jesus says, I spit you out of my mouth, literally the word means I vomit you out of my mouth. So what is it to be lukewarm? C.S. Lewis said, Jesus Christ, in his lifetime, mainly produced three effects. If you look at Jesus' life and the people he interacted with, you would normally see three effects. One was hatred. Think of the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership. One was terror. Think about when Jesus walked on the water and what the disciples' reaction. Fear, terror. The other was adoration. We spoke about Thomas earlier. And when Jesus finally met with Thomas in his resurrected form, he said, put my fingers here in my hands, put them in my side. Feel what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Lewis makes the point, none of them expressed mild approval. There it is. That's what lukewarmness is. The theological term for this would be nominal. A lukewarm Christian is one who is so compromised with the culture and the world around them that though they believe, they believe the truth, they believe the things, they go, yeah, Jesus is a great teacher and a good example, but they're nominal. They give mild approval. They're lukewarm, and it nauseates Jesus. And when Jesus confronts them, they defend themselves. For you say, Jesus says, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you know yourself? Do you defend yourself saying, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm lukewarm or not. I might compromise some here and there. But hey, look, I believe I'm rich. I'm self-sufficient. Life's going well for me. I've prospered. I'm happy. I've met my goals. I'm doing okay. I'm self-sufficient. And Jesus says to you, you are deluded. Not realizing you're pitiable, wretched, poor, and naked. The lukewarm Christian, the saddest thing about it is you don't even know you're lukewarm. Thank God the message doesn't end there. Because what does Jesus do? Fire in the basement. You want to pray for fire in the basement. Do you smell the smoke? See, know what Jesus gives. 
Jesus gives. He doesn't give up on the Laodiceans, and he doesn't give up on you. He never says it's hopeless. He says, I counsel you. Talk about Jesus, Isaiah 9, a wonderful counselor. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be truly rich with real riches when you buy from me. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be. Buy from me and you're clothed with the garments of salvation and the righteousness of Christ. And salve, beautiful ointment for your eyes so that you may truly see. And then the key phrase of this whole thing, those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. Friends, if fire is in the basement right now, I have good news for you. Jesus loves you. Those whom I love, I reprove and correct and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And the Greek word there for love is not the normal word we think of for love, the word agape, but it's the word phileo which is a very feeling-oriented word. It's a word that means affection, tenderness, indicating the way Jesus feels about his beloved. Those I am affectionate for, what do I do? I pursue them. I chase them. I come after them. Those whom I love, those who don't even know they're lukewarm, I'm chasing and hunting you down. Fire in the basement. Say, praise God. See, it's by that grace, that tenderness, that affection that Jesus says to us, you don't see how much I am willing to pursue you, to run after you. I am more committed to you than you are to yourself. I love you more than you love yourself. And it's in that context that he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Those whom I love, I stand at the door, knocking, confronting our nominalism, our lukewarmness. And even while we lock the door, fasten the deadbolt, putting the sofa in front, he turns up the smoke. Will you and will we let him in? Listen to the promise. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Rather than being nauseated and spitting you out of my mouth, he says, let's feast together. I'm interested in you. And as one commentator put it, that is a Middle Eastern way of saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you. That hesed I spoke of earlier. And the covenant I'm making with you is to be for you all that I am and to share with you all that I am. And this promise, behold, I stand at the door and knock, echoes beautiful words of love and invitation that were given by the lover to his beloved in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. In Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, the lover says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. What does Jesus give? Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. And he gives his intimacy, his friendship. The rest of the book of Revelation, where is it going? It is leading towards chapter 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus calls you his beloved. 
You want to flourish? Let him in. There is nothing sadder than a Christian with Christ on the outside. Let's pray. Oh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, help us to not be afraid of intimacy. Help us to not protect our hearts and our lives. Help us to be vulnerable first with you. And then we can learn to be vulnerable with ourselves and others. Help us to know you, to know ourselves, and to know what you want to give us, that we may feast with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.